James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. We've reached the end of the chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord, pardon me, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's pray. O great God in heaven, we give thanks to you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to inwardly take in and consume that word that we might leave, determining more and more, renewing covenant with you, but determining more and more to live as befits a child of God, earnestly desiring to be transformed by the word of God. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. January 10th in 2012, Jefferson Bathke uh, put out a poem, a poem with some uh, very emotionally moving music in the background. He was a very quality uh, video production, and he, he, he's questioning religion, and he places religion in contrast to Jesus. And what he's doing in his video is he's trying to distance Uh, from self-reliant, self-righteous religious practice. He's trying to say that Jesus Christ and following Jesus Christ is not an outward conformity to a a certain set of rules. What he says is this, what if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? Religion preaches grace, but another thing they practice tend to ridicule God's people. They did it to John the Baptist can't fix their problems, so they try to mask it, not realizing that's just like spraying perfume on a casket, because the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification like a long list of chores. Let's dress up the outside, make things look nice and neat. Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. One is the work of God. One is a, made, is a man-made invention. One is the cure. One is the infection. Because religion says done, because religion says do, Jesus says done. Religion says slave, Jesus says son. He gets it wrong. But there's a lot about his poem that's really quite winsome, uh, things that that I, I really like that he says. He clearly has a determination to make sure that all those who hear him believe that and understand that there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. He believes in grace alone, through Christ alone, uh, by the instrumentation of believing in faith alone. He believes those things. And I believe in his video that that he speaks also of justification uh, by faith. But the problem is he sets religion against Jesus. He sets relationship against religion. And yet the truth of the matter is Jesus was a man who pra- was was a was a being who practiced religion. He practiced the right use of sacraments, and in fact, he established two 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 sacraments for the church: baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he told his 
He commanded his disciples to do those very things uh, until he comes again. He also established the church, and he told Peter that he would establish and build his church upon Peter's confession that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. Jesus had a love for the church to such an extent that he died for the church. The church is and is part of religion as we understand it. Now, there's much, much more to be said about this subject. I don't want to go off on an aside, but the truth of the matter is that religion is a biblical concept. And here is James this morning telling us what real religion is, what true religion is. And make, make, make sure that you don't make the mistake that Jefferson Bathke did and somehow say that if Christ establishes rules or makes the explicit statement that if you love me, obey my commandments, is somehow a, 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 a statement that says, look, all you have to do is conform to these outside or external expectations and internally you will be a new creation. No, that's not what James is saying here. And I think that we'll see that as we understand what he says as we exposit together and spend a few moments in the text. James has, to set the context, has been discussing the fact that God is ready to give his wisdom to us if if only we ask. And then he related that he shared his nature with us when he became... Uh, when we became his children. Then James began to discuss life and how we have to live within it, some of the dangers and pitfalls, suffering, trials, temptations that we will endure, and how we can count it all joy uh, when we encounter those various trials. But now we may be asking, in the light of all that we have discussed in previous weeks, how will the life of a believer look? If it grasps hold of the wisdom of God, how will we live since we have been given a new nature? How can I assure my wayward heart that I am a child of God? Well, James shares with us and answers those questions. He shares with us three accompanying marks of religion that will naturally coincide with a changed heart, like the Father like the Son, we will be like God. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In fact, there are three things that James identifies. A bridled tongue, a ministry of mercy and care and personal piety or holy life. Well, before we even begin to get into those three points, we have to ask a a natural question. What is religion? What is James saying? What What does James mean by the word religion or religious? There are two answering senses to this word, the first of which refers in a general way, to all the outward forms of religion to which we are all well aware. This sense of religion expresses the specific ways in which a heart relationship to God is expressed in an individual's life. So then if our lives express that what we believe about God, then all we need to do is watch our tongues and give to the poor and needy and live an outwardly pious, righteous life. Well, no, that's not what James is saying, as we said a moment ago. 
James doesn't give us a comprehensive list of religious activities that we have to do. That's not what he's doing. And frankly, we're prone to that as human beings, aren't we? To reduce Christianity to, or real and actual religion, sincere religion, to a list of do's and don'ts. That's not what James is doing here. We'll see that. So many in the world think that, well, what, what, what I, what's most important to me is not following a set of rules, and I don't want to have anything to do with religion. What a relevant passage this morning for our generation. Rather, James is not saying, look, if you do those things, you're good to go. You're, you're, you're good with, with God. You don't need to pray. You don't need to go to church. You don't need to worship the Lord. You don't need to open the word. You don't need baptism. You don't need the Lord's Supper. No, he didn't say all of those things. James is not giving us a comprehensive list because we often reduce things to lists. But he's giving us a means in general categories for how to test our hearts to see whether or not we are religiously true and rightly so or not, whether or not we are in right standing with God, whether or not our confession of faith that we profess with our mouths is actually down deep in our very soul, in the DNA of our body. There's a second sense of the word, the use of that word religious, and James steers us this way. When the translations of our Bible from the Greek began this word, religion had another intent meaning or inherent meaning, that of worship. So when James is talking about sincere religion, true religion, the right practice of religion, he's actually got in his mind, he's thinking about worship. All that you and I do is we enter into the congregation on the Lord's Day as we, we pray the word, we sing the word, we see the word, we, 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 we hear the word, we preach the word. As we come in and all of the various ways in which we stand up and sit down and we listen to prayers and we pray and we confess our faith, that all of those things are ways in which we are expressing and worshiping God and expressing our devotion for him. It's not just that we believe, but we act out what we believe in our religious practices. In this sense, James is referring to not just a system of religion and its acts, but also its expression, the expression of what you believe. So we'll come back to this thought a little bit later, but James begins to discuss that. It begins with a bridled tongue. Now, I looked up the word and as I was going through the Greek, and yes, this word speaks of bridling. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but maybe you've seen a bridle. Maybe you've ridden a horse at some point in your life. I remember my, my grandmother had horses, uh, one or two of them in the backyard and on a small farm. And I remember seeing that bridle being put into the horse's mouth. And I remember as a small boy thinking, I will never put my, my hands in the mouth of a horse. I remember seeing how the horse would have to carry this Huge, in my eyes, as a small boy, this huge, massive steel bridle uh, stuck on its tongue between its teeth and being jerked around from the left to the right and determining uh, the direction in which it desires to go. Uh, it doesn't have that power. Rather, the rider does. But that's the very explicit illustration that James wants us to have. As a Christian, we would be actively, if we were a sincere Christian, walking in true faith in Jesus Christ, 
then we are bridling carefully our tongue. In other words, in very simple language, I no longer speak the way I did before I became a Christian. And now I'm speaking differently and I'm adding things to my conversation that I never did before. So I'm dropping the swearing. I'm letting go of filthy coarse talk, which the Bible says I ought not to engage in anyway as a believer. I'm not making sexual jokes around the lunch cooler and I'm watching carefully so that my speech is salt and light to the people with whom I'm interacting with at work. But in addition to that, I'm adding in, in the midst of conversation, I'm going to talk about my God. I'm going to speak of the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to be ashamed of him because he saved me from my sins. So all of a sudden, my speech has changed. And I realize that my speech can either glorify God or I can bring shame to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom I confess before my friends. And I recognize that they're watching me, and they're listening to me. And I recognize, too, that my speech, when, I'm, when I don't bridle my tongue and govern it by the word of God, not that I'm merely trying to uh, expand my vocabulary or, or be able to sound religious amongst religious circles, Rather, our motivation in all of this is so that God would be glorified and also that we would benefit. When I let my tongue run wild, I run into issues. <laughs> I offend people. I hurt the ones I love. I'm angry and I'm bitter. God commands me to watch my tongue and bridle my tongue. And James has that before us this morning it's not just what comes out of our mouth, though. It's not just merely an external thing. That person has never uttered an unkind word. I hope that's what people can say of you. But, but, but God, who sees every thought, can he say that person has never, never, never considered nor thought of an unkind thing toward another person? You see, there are two levels of conversation. What comes out and the conversation that goes through our mind. We're always in conversation, are we not? I'm always thinking. Yesterday, or a couple of days ago, there was a man who was angry with me for a particular move that I made on the highway. Wasn't anything wrong with what I did, I can assure you of that. It was just merely a, on a highway, heading south, and three lanes had to merge into one. And so I had to find a way to get in. I had my blinker on. Uh, he pulled out. He wanted to prevent anyone else from going past him. There was nowhere to get in by him. So I had to go around him, and I merged in the way I was supposed to do. And as he expressed his anger with me in various ways, um, later on in the day, I couldn't help but think about the incident and go through in my mind what I wish I had said in the moment. You know how that is when something happens and you wish you had the, the best words for exactly that moment so that you could say the, most, the, the smartest thing, the most harmful thing, and be able to walk away, drop the mic, and say, I won. There's a sinful part of me that wants to do that. And it, it was going through my mind, the conversation that I had with him for the rest of the day. I wish I'd done that. I, I should have said that. The truth is, that was a sinful conversation. I shouldn't think that way. 
And I will say that in the midst of my my interaction with this man, I was considering. I, I carefully was because because the Holy Spirit was reminding me who I am. Be careful about your actions, Stephen. Be careful of what comes out of your mouth. And I was. I was. I can assure you. But it's that inner conversation. It's that inner one that's so that's so filthy, that's so wicked, that's so unkind, that's so harmful. Bridle your tongue is what James says. Don't let those conversations take place inside your head. Don't let them come out of your mouth, but don't let them take place inside either. Why did James put his, put his finger first on the tongue? Why is James bringing up the tongue when we're simply talking about the marks of true religion in the soul? Why does he say, well, bridle, bridle your tongue? <laughs> I think it's because it's the hardest thing to do. It's one of the hardest things to do. James doesn't call us to a silenced tongue, but to a bridled one. It's a, visit, it's a very vivid picture. Uh, and, and there you are on the horse. You've got the, the reins in your hands. Is a long, longer than you realize until you're on top of a horse. A very long leather pieces and that are in your hands and in the mouth, a very large steel piece in that horse's mouth. And if you pull to the left, it makes them just com- uncomfortable enough to turn to the left. And just if you pull on the right, it will make them just uncomfortable enough to make them pull to the right. And you can pull them extremely to the right or extremely to the left, however uncomfortable you wish the horse to be. But one way or the other, you're in charge when you're on top of that horse within reason. He can buck you right off. But James is telling us, look, you need to bridle your tongue. You need to put something in there, the word of God, that will stop your tongue in that moment when you're emotionally without restraint and when you're ready to do great harm to yourself and to others. Left to themselves, we'll find that our tongues are truly the wild beasts that James points them out to be. Their natural, savage instincts can't be given full play. They have to be broken and harnessed. Years ago, there was a woman who came to the church. She was a delightful person. I really liked her. She was a a blessing in many ways. But she declared when she came to the church, first time I ever met her, she said, well, I have a very big mouth, and it's just who I am. It's how I am, and and I just want to warn you ahead of time. And I I said, thank you. I appreciate that. I had no idea. And over the years, she, she would say what was on her mind. But she was a dear Christian lady because she was careful. She was careful. Some of us may be thinking that our tongues are pretty well bridled. Well, we fool ourselves into thinking that our, our speech is flowery. We do only bless people when we speak, that we are wise, we are good. Our words are carefully chosen. But oftentimes we are very negligent to the fact that our words harm others. Or our, our approach or our attitude about things really harms others, even if our words were fine. We didn't express the kind of compassion, the grace, the mercy, the love that we were commanded to use together with our words. We need to think about what we say and govern what we say by God in his perspective on the words that we can use. If we honestly think for a moment about that 
and time that someone insulted us, what was our first response that crossed our mind? I know what mine usually is. It's self-defense. It's self-righteousness. It's it's internally, well, they have no right to say that. I'm going to tell them who they, who do they think they, they're, they're talking to. I'm going to make it clear that I have hand here, not you. Those are natural reactions. What kind of speech flows from our mouths when our spirits are low or something has upset us or made us angry? There's more potential to harm in our mouths than in our hands. And we know this. You remember the slips of the tongue that you perhaps wounded a child or a member of your family with, or perhaps you think that you can use whatever language you wish to use and it will never really lastingly harm your family. But I will say this to fathers and mothers, the words you're using in your home are explicitly the words your children will use when they leave your home. What you say is what they'll say. The apple will not fall far from the tree. And what are you teaching your children? We cannot anticipate the discussion that will come up in chapter 3 because James will tell us an awful lot more about the tongue. He has a lot to say about the tongue. But James is making the point here that if we profess to be religious but leave our tongues unbridled and we use the words and say whatever manner of filth that we wish to say, sounding like the world, acting like the world, and in fact, we may be deceiving ourselves. We may be deceiving our own hearts. We say, I'm sure I'm a Christian. And yet your speech says, no, no, you're not. We're telling ourselves things about our inner selves that really aren't true. We may have all the religion of the famous Pharisee of Luke 18, But like him, we profess a religion that is vain. This is why God has linked the heart and the tongue so that the tongue, our speech, is an accurate index of what we are at the core of our persons. How you speak is who you are. Who you are will come out in how you speak consistently. You may have a good moment or a bad moment, but all the middle section is who you are. This is why God has linked these two. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus from Matthew 12, 34. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So hearing this as a Christian, shouldn't we immediately say, I need to clean up my act? If you're a Christian, you can acknowledge, yes, my speech has not been sanctified and I have a lot of work to do here. All right, then. If you're a child of God... If you know the power of the Holy Spirit, you believe in the Lord, and you know that He is a, the Spirit of God is at work sanctifying you, conforming you to the image of Christ, transforming you, pardon me. And surely you can ask of God. Didn't James say that earlier in chapter 1? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Isn't this a matter of being in need of the wisdom of God as we look at our lives and consider our speech? In our conversations, don't we need the wisdom of God to discern what is right and good and to abstain from that which is evil? Yes. Ask the Lord. Lord, I want to clean up my speech. I want to have words course through my mind that are sanctifying. I want to think like you think. I want to speak well and not evil. 
Ask the Lord. He'll give it to you. He gives without reproach, he says. James asks about our speech, and then he implies some other questions. What are you? Are you a child of God? Are you sure that you are? Is that mark of a child of God evident in your speech and in your inner dialogue as an index of what you surely are inside? If your heart is right, your tongue will show it. If you love the Lord, you'll bridle your tongue. The second mark is a ministry of mercy and care. James has told us to look inward and examine our hearts and the speech that proceeds out of them, but he also wants us to look at our heart and see whether or not compassion flows there as well. He exhorts us to look upwards, perhaps to really see, to consider the Father, to see his life is at work in us. Does God's life pulse in our veins? Then surely we should have the compassion that God has shown us. How can we know if we are truly saved? Well, James provides that practical test. Psalm 68.5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So James looks for a lesser but nonetheless unmistakable likeness to our Father in the realm of protection and care for others. He doesn't speak of general kindness, such as anyone might show. I have kind neighbors on my street. I'd be kind non-Christians all the time. You do too. But a kindness that flows from out of the kindness of God, out of the very heart of God, that's what's in view here. And what should that be? But an actual display of concern for others which bear the characteristics of God and his concern for us. James is asking us whether or not we are moved by the needs of others. And moved in such a way that we're not looking to get something from them, but moved out of concern for them. What about the needy, the orphans, the poor, the imprisoned, the widows? Do I ever show compassion for a friend? Do I, do I provide for their need? I know of someone who had a need this last week of a repair, a vehicle, and various people came to that person's distress and provided everything, covered it all. It was an extraordinary thing. They didn't have much, but they gave what they had, and all the, of the need was met. What is that? Where did that come from? Is it just lots of kind pagans? No, it was the compassion of God, expressed and animated through the compassion of loved ones around that person. The compassion of God at work in giving to a need. James thinks that one mark of being a believer is that we forget ourselves and we look to the needs of other people. We're concerned for how one another are doing. We're concerned about needs that, are, that we are overwhelmed by. We, we are concerned to make sure that we are bearing the burdens that we each face that we are rejoicing with one another when we rejoice, that we are weeping with one another when we re- weep. And, and we carefully want to make certain that we are esteeming others more highly than we do ourselves. So we are humble with regard to the needs of believing brothers and sisters in Christ and the general needs of the world. 
The next thought of personal holiness works well with this. For We'll find that the most powerful way of keeping us from the sins of the world is an honest and thoroughgoing flinging of ourselves into the necessities and sorrows of other people and helping to bear their burdens. So the third point in this passage is in this test of what James says is true religion is personal piety. You remember Mr. Bathke, Jefferson Bathke, and he was complaining about an external righteousness that is practiced, meanwhile with an inner corruption, a private corruption that persists, a lack of a relationship with Jesus, a lack of a concern for others. In fact, he criticizes the church and says that divorced women are cast out from the church, that people who struggle with pornography are cast away and unused, that the church bars its doors. I'm sorry, but this church has never done so. And I know plenty of other churches that haven't either. There is grace with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness with God. And any church that does not believe and practice that is not really a church. So go to a, a church that believes in the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God. Go to a church that breathes imperfectly, but breathes out the heart of God in their activity and seeks to bear the one another's burdens and show Christ's love to the world. That's true religion. It's genuine religion that worships and worships the living God and seeks to practice what he commands. Personal piety is that third test. Not an external, simply do all these things and when, when, when you do them, you're, you're in good shape. No parent wishes this of their children. No parent wants their children simply to conform all the 18 perhaps or, or so years that they may live in the home and then they can live like hell afterwards. No, no parent wants that. Every parent wants their children to be trained by righteousness, to fall into conformity with their values as expressed in the word of God. The things which we value as Christian parents, we want our children to practice, not simply because we want them to, to do certain things so that they can leave having no heart connection with God, an emptiness inside, but oh, they look good on the outside. Like a used car with no engine. No, they, we want our children to have a living and vital relationship with God. And we want them to understand that that God has a right to require of them that they be, conform, that they be transformed by the image of his son because he is at work in them both to do and to will his good pleasure. Every Christian parent wants their child to leave with a sense of God with a relationship with him and a desire to live for him with a tender conscience. Personal piety is important because it's indicative of of inner life. There's, There's no identity in the world that will say, look, all you have to do is to adopt an external persona. Meanwhile, internally, you can continue to be whatever you want. No one... No one accepts that. In fact, companies want to hire workers who who have at least some inkling of a concern for the well-being of the company for which they work. They want them to think of what benefits the company and of what 
what will conduce itself ultimately to their own continued employment and the betterment of the employment or of the company and the employment of others around them. You join a country, you've got to know certain facts about that country and want in some way the well-being of that country. You're part of a family. You can't just simply say, yeah, I'm part of that family and then have nothing to do with them. You've got to do family things. As a Christian, if you are genuinely a Christian, you have to believe certain things. And then because you believe those things, they have to work themselves out practically in your life, too, and in your conduct. To be honest, becoming a Christian changes our whole perspective on how we think about the world, the cosmos, and all that is within it. There is no true religion in the soul that says I can live in whatever way I wish and that all of these things that I process with my mind are detached from my heart. In other words, there's no such thing as someone who can say, or there's no such thing as a true Christian who says, I believe a series of things, but I don't have to live it. Simply disconnected, contrary to in contradiction to any saving profession. Is your whole life devoted to God? Is your whole life devoted to the one who saved you? Are are you completely devoted to him? That's James's question. God brought us to the new birth with the purpose that we should be a kind of first fruits, he said in preceding verses. And we came to understand that this thought summarized his people as being specially his, and notably holy. And so James tells us to be unstained from the world. What does he mean by the world? It's the same way in which Paul and John have used it. It's the whole human scheme of things organized in terms of human wisdom to attain a human goal without reference to God, his laws, his judgments, his values. The world is, in fact, anything and everything that is at odds with the lordship of Jesus Christ. If we're to live in for him in the world as a constant issue and a constant need daily of renewal and commitment to him, of loyalty to him, are we his or not? And if we are his, we should be living for him. The disconnect oftentimes between organized religion and ourselves refusing to become part of it all is there's a disconnect ultimately between what I want to be And what God is calling me to be. If there's a disconnection, dear friend, this morning between what you profess with your lips and what way is that you are living in your heart, today is the day to address that. Repent of your sin and disconnection between faith and practice. Confess to God that you have professed faith in him, but you've lived for yourself. Contrary to his directions. Ask of him that he would give you wisdom how to live for him. How to live no longer for yourself, but to live for Jesus Christ. And to glorify him in your conduct, your way of life. Ask him to forgive you for neglecting the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Failing to use your gifts for the service of God to one another. Things which we are explicitly commanded in Scripture to do. Ask his forgiveness for neglecting every week that God's people have 
gathered together and worshipped him to the deprivation of your own soul and renew your desire to grow in grace, to grow and increase in the knowledge of the Lord. Ask the Lord to help you to grow, to be unsatisfied with the stagnant place in which you currently are. Ask the Lord to forgive you and ask him and enable, and to enable you to follow him, and he will. You know, <clears throat> if we're to live for him in the world is a constant issue of commitment and loyalty. Are we his? We don't grow stale because we had some, typically one great big event in our life that led us away from God. We grow stale in our lives because of the small things that we never really complained about. We began to accept, well, yes, I can watch this television show or this movie with profanity and nudity. It won't affect me ultimately because I know who I believe in. I can be angry over this incident and I can use filthy language to describe it and to interact with another human being because it's not really going to affect my heart. Yes, it will. I don't really have to live for God today. I'm going to live for myself. And Jesus knows who I am. I'm in relationship with him. Well, if you're in relationship with him, then shouldn't you hear his voice? Shouldn't you obey his word? Shouldn't he and his perspective on your life be the thing that is primary for you? We're faced with the world's ceaseless bombardment of our eyes, our ears, our thoughts, our imaginations. The world's insidious erosion of values and standards. It clamors for our time, our money, our energy. It's easy to adopt a general life, a way of life, which though it may avoid the open pitfalls of sin, yet it's not discernibly different from the style of one who doesn't really know Christ. And so we're... Fundamentally, at the end of the day, we act like good pagans, and that's about it. The Bible's command is that we be transformed into the image of our Savior, that we not be conformed to this world. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you practice sincere and true religion, then that will show up in your life. Now, James doesn't just say, well, keep yourselves out of the world, but he says, put yourself into it, live in it. But when you're in the thickest part of the filth and the mud of the earth and the ways of the world, see that no spots and splashes of that filth of sin find their way onto the garments of your life. This implies that it's very likely, unless we take rigid care, that contact with the external world, the aggregate of godless men, which makes up the world, will infect Christian men and women with evil at times, even when we're going on works of benevolence and mercy. But God has provided a solution. <laughs> when we sin, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we have a God who gives generously of his wisdom without reproach if we come to him. One writer has said, any man who has honestly set himself for the task of molding his life into the likeness which God would approve must know that to walk through the wards of a hospital and to catch no infection, to stand in a dung heap and bring away no stench or foulness clinging to clothing is as easy as it is to plunge into the world and catch no contagion and no pollution there. So we have to be careful. 
I want to leave you with one final thought. None of this is anything that God himself hasn't already done. Did, 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 Did that occur to you already? We are told to bridle our tongue, to have a a compassion and a concern for the needy, and also to practice personal piety that pleases God, that is holy. And yet this is true. Those three marks that James records for us this morning are exactly parallel to the acts of God. And every biblical text is about God and his character anyway. So we do right to find God here. He is the one who reached out to us with the word of truth, isn't he? Well, James tells us to bridle our own words, God was carefully presenting to us words of salvation. And then he gave us the Logos, the living word. And so God, who commands us to bridle our tongue, is the God who speaks carefully with words of salt, of light, and of grace to an unbelieving people who are lost in their trespasses and sins, And he issues words that bring us and give us the directions to receive his grace and mercy and forgiveness. He speaks to us words of love. Do not be afraid. He tells us, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Behind his spoken word lay that act of his will, whereby he determined that he would save us, depraved and death-bound as we were, Meanwhile, James tells us to show that same kind of mercy to those who are oppressed and less fortunate. You question, well, I don't have time for compassion. I don't really have the ability to be compassionate for people. Yes, yes, you do. If you've you've experienced the compassion of God for you as a sinner, surely you can and will have flowing through you. As an instrument of God, you will have flowing through you that grace, that mercy, that tenderness, that kindness, that compassion, that empathy. Because it's in all the God's people who have experienced his compassion. Well, finally, his purpose in redemption was to produce a first fruits as holy and special unto him. Therefore, James, James tells us to bear this mark outwardly by engaging in and fighting for personal holiness. So God is at work doing these things. How can we do anything less than simply to walk as our Father walks? To to let a reflection, a dim reflection nonetheless, but a reflection of the glory of God be reflected in our lives as we walk, not by sight, but by faith, in the living God who has loved us and given given himself for us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would help us to love you and give ourselves back to you. Lord, it's all that we can do. And we, we, we recognize the, the great chasm of difference, of qualitative and quantitative difference between ourselves and what we offer to you and what you have offered to us. For you have given us your beloved Son. You have loved what was unlovely and unloving. And the people that were no longer a people were made your children. Well, Lord, we we simply cannot plumb the depths of your compassion. But, Lord, we can express, at least in our meager human sense, something of compassion to one another. 
We can be kind and gentle with one another. We can be gracious and forgiving and patient. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do this and thus give evidence of our hidden life with Christ, of the truth and the veracity and the fidelity of, of our verbal profession. We pray also, O God, that you would help us to bridle our tongues because surely so much of the conversation, especially the inner dialogue, is not sprinkled with salt. Our language is often left unbridled, and we think things that we should not. And We're guilty of hatred, of unkindness, of a lack of mercy, of gossip. Oh, Lord, help us to walk in humility. Help us to walk with personal piety, a desire to live a holy and godly life that glorifies God. It doesn't lift up ourselves and makes the world fascinated with us, rather that they would be fascinated with the, with Jesus Christ and the difference that Christ makes in the life of an unbel- of a believer. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand that our personal witness be- begins, it begins with godly conduct, glorifying God in all that we de- do, say, and think. So help us to do this, to glorify Jesus to glorify our God, our Father, to glorify the Holy Spirit. Let us see these marks within ourselves, Lord. Let us press on for them. Help us, Lord, to do it, to glorify you in all that we do. And let us see, Lord, even within ourselves, something of a reflection of our Father and of your work in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.